Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. From the vaults, you're listening to a conversation between two composer-conductors, Philip Glass and Matthew Acoin. The conversation was recorded in fall of 2016. They met prior to one of the performances of L.A. Opera's production of Akhenaten by composer Philip Glass and conducted by Matthew Acoin. Good evening, everyone. Um, what a pleasure to be here with the, <laughs> the one and only... <laughs> Philip Glass, I, I think so. It's, it's you, right? <laughs> no, there are a couple of other it's, ones around, but they don't. But it's really music. you, okay? Uh, having been living with and within um, your music for the past few months, I can just say that it's a it's a rare kind of um, nourishment and 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 joy. Um, so I wanted to begin the conversation by asking you because Akhenaten premiered in, in 1983 in, in Stuttgart, Germany, and, and you've seen it probably many times since then. H how has your own relationship with the piece evolved? Do you feel, in a way, closer to it, more distant from it? Does well, it evolve? Both, actually. Yeah. Closer to it and more distant to it at the same time. But uh, it was the third opera I, I, could, I began this. It was a trilogy, really. It began with the Einstein piece which I did with uh, Bob Wilson, I Saw on the Beach, which is also here. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that I did Satyagraha, and then this was the third one. And the idea was uh, to address the uh, ideas of uh, social change through nonviolence. Mm -hmm. That's actually what the whole thing was about. And I, uh, uh, Einstein was one that was science, and Gandhi uh, uh, was uh, politics. And Akhenaten was religion. They're considered the three uh, states. The fourth one being the press, by the way, which is because. Have you gotten around to writing that opera? I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> I think that's too scary. <laughs> but uh, uh, but but the the idea was to. I had done uh, two fairly contemporary stories with mm -hmm. my son and and uh, and um, and Gandhi, and then for the third one, I really didn't know where to go mm -hmm. until I I came across a. This book by Volokovsky called Moses and Monotheism. It's called uh, Moses and Akhenaten, actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, the idea of going way back to the 18th dynasty pharaohs, I thought that was a good idea. Just because the idea was that these, uh, these were issues that happened in society, no matter when, how old or how recent they might be. And something I didn't know before I started studying your piece was the theory that uh, Judaism, and so modern-day monotheism, maybe emerged out of followers of Akhenaten. Was That's this, right. Was this that, something uh, that inspired you? The idea that you? Moses was a priest, uh, an underground priest of the Akhenaten order. Wow. And, uh, Akhenaten, what, shall I tell him at the end of the opera? I think, do, do you want, spoiler yeah, alert, cover you your ears if you don't want to Akhenaten. Well, anyway, you don't know. It, it isn't very nice what happens to him at the end, but uh, <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what happened, but... Uh, the idea was then that uh, uh, his name was erased from the, the uh, list of kings. And they were so, the Egyptians were so angry at him that he was, they tried to eliminate him entirely. And we only discovered 
that he was uh, that there was an Ignatian in the, the 19th century, uh, with some excavations of uh, um, uh, 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 that were happening around that time. About uh, and and so that uh, uh, there was a lot of scuffling around trying to figure out who he was, and it turned out he was this uh, not forgotten, but actually bur buried. Uh, erased, erased, so forth, so forth. And it, I, I, when we were working on it, I went to Egypt, uh, and we found some. Uh, we were told where to go, but we found some stelae, which are big uh, uh, stone, uh, uh, big uh, slabs of stone, which which has hieroglyphics on it. And mm. so you can find traces of him uh -huh. uh, around, around. But uh, 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 there wasn't much that was known about him, even at the time when we were writing the opera. But uh, uh, the little that was known is that there hasn't been much more that's been known because it's been so. But the point was is that he, what he had done, which was so unthinkable, he had he removed uh, the there were there were quite a few gods in the, the in the uh, panoply of the of the Egyptians, and he got rid of all of them and said there's only really one, the like, sun. And it's, and it's the sun. Uh, a good choice, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you probably think that's so in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> But at any rate, uh, that's, is that why we're here? Well, it has not rained. It is maybe anyway, one so morning. Point, so, that, so that was the point. Uh, and uh, and they, uh, they rewarded him by, uh, by eliminating him. And so they tried to, they tried to make him to, to be the forgotten pharaoh. And he virtually was. So was it an idea that was just too much to take? Maybe it's time... Had to well, he was, he was going against, I mean, he was the only one that had that idea. He happened to be the pharaoh. So he, he basically uh, forced the whole country to follow him. And he, he was only, was in, in, uh, um, he was only pharaoh for 17 years. Mm -hmm. And that, then he was removed. Uh, um, uh, so uh, uh, Tutankhamun was one of his children. So that's why we know him, because actually when the, the tomb, or the tomb of, one of the tombs of Tutankhamun was found, they found a, a, a mention of the father, which was Akhenaten. That's, mm -hmm. that's how we even discovered him. But the, the idea really was to, uh, uh, was to talk about social... Now, with, with Gandhi, it was pretty clear what that was, but with Akhenaten, it was social change, but rather more violent. But in fact, it was a social change which kind of got reversed almost immediately. Mm. So, but again, uh, what I was also interested in doing at that time, I was in my late 30s, I think I was maybe 40 when I wrote this one, 40, 41, and I was interested in, uh, I got interested in opera and theater because I, I understood that, that in mediums of theater and opera, or film for that matter, it's also true, uh, you can address issues of social change which, when you're running a string quartet, it's very hard to do that. Uh, or, or most symphonies, you can't do it. Uh, uh, but if you think about the history of opera, it's, it's all through Verdi, and uh, the only opera of, of Beethoven is, is a political opera. So the idea of, uh, and I've done three or four other operas about, uh, that were political. I just did a, one last year at the Washington called Appomattox, which was about the uh, Voting Rights Amendment. And that goes from 1865 to 1965. So, uh, and I was, I never thought the Washington Opera would do it, but they did it. And there were six or seven performances. The first night, two members of the Supreme Court came, uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor came. And uh, so, but 
I, w I was interested in the, in the fact that, uh, that, that the arts can participate in, in a dialogue about society and about where society is going. And that if you have, some, if you have the ability and, and some ideas on that, on that it can be a powerful, a, a powerful tool, a powerful way of talking. I was fascinated by the relationship between um, what Akhenaten did socially and what you did musically. <laughs> well, I, I, Matthew, I never thought of that, actually. <laughs> would you rather, would you like to elaborate a little bit? <laughs> well, and you can, you can please, please tell me I'm talking nonsense, but it struck me that this, this really radical um, decision of, of Akhenaten's well, to say, you know, we're going to worship the sun. Yeah, I, didn't, has I didn't have to pay the ultimate price for doing that. <laughs> you are still here. I'm still here. Thank goodness. What? So that was not a conscious, uh, there was no conscious parallel. Well, not really, but on the other hand, uh, the people I chose for that first trilogy, Gandhi and Einstein and Ignatan, they all were, they all changed the language of the world they lived in and thereby changed the world they lived in. Uh, I mean, I love the parallels in the in the music. I must say, well, uh, some people weren't so happy about the changes. Other people were. I mean, uh, I actually wasn't doing it for that reason. I was. Yeah. This was the music I was writing, and so that's how it came out. I wasn't actually trying to write uh, a kind of classic operas. Uh, I was actually interested in, in addressing uh, uh, social issues in the theater. Mm -hmm. uh, this last year, I just did the music for The Crucible of Arthur Miller. Hmm. And uh, I was very uh, moved by the piece and by the, and, and working on it. And it, it reminded me of what, that was very much of what I was trying to do. I remember I once had to give a, a talk in college to an, a retirement home outside of Boston that was going to the, the Met HD screening of Satyagraha. And we've been very lucky. We have lots of passionate audiences who love this music. But at this particular retirement home, I had a very cranky audience. And they were saying, oh, I don't understand. I don't know. And I said, gosh, you're behaving an awful lot like the colonial government in India. And I, and I think this music is nonviolently resisting you. And I have to say, Matthew, it kind of worked. Great. They, 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 some of them actually said, huh, OK. And you know, it, if if you if the if you let the music nonviolently well, keep look, doing its thing, point. it, look, it that, wins. <laughs> that uh, Satyagraha is sung in Sanskrit, so they obviously didn't understand it. But there should have been uh, the text should have been projected on the wall somewhere. Probably. Probably they were. Now in this case, I had the same. Uh, I wanted to use the original language, uh, but I also wanted the audience to understand it. So we um, we created a, a role of. Uh, a narrator who actually tells you what he says in English, what you're going to hear. Mm. So I combined for just a moment the, the, the form of melodrama where you have music and, uh, and, and speech together. And for most of the opera, it's sung in ancient Egyptian, ancient Akkadian, but I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the, the exception, the scene where Akhenaten has a hymn to the sun which is actually in the vernacular. And if I, if I understand that correctly, we're hearing it in English, but if we were in Sweden, would you want it to be in Swedish? Is, it, is, this, is the well, it would be in the, thing? It would be in the language of the audience. Always the language of the audience. And uh, uh, that particular hymn uh, was very similar to one of the, uh, 
the Psalms of the of the Hebrew Psalms. Uh, I, I forget the, the number, but it's a uh, uh, it's almost a word for word transcription from from the, from the Egyptian into the Hebrew. And uh, but we we transcribed it into English, and it should be done. And the the narrator's role will be spoken in the language if it was. It was recently done in Italy, and uh, I'm sure they did in Italian. Uh, so partly is that uh, uh, by doing it this way, you don't have to wrestle with, do I understand what people are singing? Because you're not supposed to. <laughs> you, you will have heard it be, whatever is spoken just before will be what that person is singing. And it's, it's, it feels very emotionally clear. I must having seen it <laughs> several hundred times by now. I wonder... Are there any are there any subjects related to maybe related to social change that you're thinking? Gosh, that would make a great opera. Do you have anything that you think? Well, I thought I just did the the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I just did it a few years ago. Right. That was a really good one. And uh, also, I had no idea that when I, I did the first version in San Francisco, and I had no idea that it would that it would have been gutted by the Congress. A few years later, yeah. and then I had so I had to rewrite the opera and write a new second act, so, based on history, which was a, a based on what had happened. So in a way, I, the, uh, the, uh, the the opera was trying to catch up with history. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's still trying to catch up, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I think uh, being able to talk about the contemporary world that we live in, mm -hmm. in, 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 the, in, the, in the structure of, an, of, a, of a cultural event like an opera, is a tremendous thing to be able to do. Uh, and, and that's why in uh, the history of opera is full of things like this. It felt very cathartic last week. It was, a, it was a painful week for a lot of people. We had a brush up rehearsal last Wednesday and there was not a dry eye in the room. And it just, it just felt like it was this vessel for all the things people were feeling, I have to say. It's, um, the thing about these operas that are about politics and society, they're always fresh. Because yeah. the same old story keeps on happening. It just happens in different ways. And uh, um, I didn't write, didn't, I, never, I never imagined that, that these things would happen. But, but now uh, I'm thinking of other operas. I did another opera called Waiting for the Barbarians, which, is for, which I wrote it about Catanamo and, and, and torture mm -hmm. and prisons. And, uh, and then it turned out to be much, much more about that than I thought. I, it yeah. became out to be very relevant. That opera was, it was so dark. Uh, it was, it was uh, performed one, uh, it, uh, it did a run in Germany. I don't think anyone's done it since then. But I, I do think it'll, it'll, it's the kind of thing that will come back because, uh, because those, those events tend to come back. You know, we don't get better at uh, doing things as a society. It yeah. doesn't seem that we do. So, so we, we get to, to, to write about it and think about it all over again. Well, in Akhenaten, the piece does capture that cyclical quality. Oh. We sort of end up, musically, we end up remarkably where the, the, the music well, of the prologue yeah, recurs we, yeah. it, in the it, epilogue. It, we ended up in, with a contemporary moment, but we won't tell them what it is. <laughs> I'm curious how you see the figure of Akhenaten, um, because as a radical, um, as, a, as someone who, who kind of imposed a vision mm. on the society, um, do, do you see it as a, as, a, as a potentially liberating force in the way that a bunch of other people 
centuries later followed his monotheistic impulse? Or do you see him more as a tyrant who imposed his I think will? He was a, I think he was a definitely uh, prof prophetic and a dreamer. A dreamer. I don't think he was a tyrant at all. In fact, uh, uh, he, was, he was born into his father's Amahatap, the uh, fourth. So his father was the, the, the pharaoh before him. He was bound to be the pharaoh. There was nothing they could do about that. No elections there. They, he just took it over. But what they got was somebody. Now, this is, he was a very, such an unusual character. Now, you don't actually hear him sing anything till almost the end of the first act. Mm. You just see him. You see him. And um, I wanted to introduce, uh, he turns out to be a very unique character. And when he opens his voice and begins singing, you understand why that is, but we're not going to tell them. You really have to hear that when he first sings, and he said, oh, my God, is that Ignatius? And it is. And, and actually, I'm afraid the Egyptians of his day probably thought the same thing. They thought, oh, my God, is that the Pharaoh? And, and it was. And without saying what this means vocally, uh, there is a relationship between this voice and questions about sort of his identity. In modern terms, he may have been something like what we would call transgender or the, the first hermaphrodite oh, is a legend. We These are all know. myths. There, there are lots of, there, there's, lots, there's evidence in, in the, we've, we've found pictures of him now. Mm -hmm. We know what he looked like. Um, he, he was a, a pointy head fellow. He, <laughs> he came to a point. I mean, he looked strange also. A cone head. He was yeah, the first yeah. cone head. <laughs> yeah, and he, yeah. He was a, he was a very, he was a very intriguing character. Nefer, uh, uh, his wife was... Nefertiti. Nefertiti was famed for being the, the most beautiful woman in that part of the world mm -hmm. uh, that they knew. And then she was married to this guy who must have looked... He must have looked very freaky to the people of his time. Now, there may have been medical reasons for that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been... There's all kinds of... I mean, the research is happening 2,500 years later, more or less. Right. So, uh, the, the, well, all we have are or visual evidences that we can see in some of the tombs. Do you work much with younger composers? Yeah, yes, I do. How do you uh, how do you find that that uh, the process of is it is it in the teaching capacity or is it more not a collegial exactly. way? Uh, 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 I, 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 I'm not a teacher in that way at all. But um, I, I I'm on programs of music with them. I, I've mm -hmm. started a, some. A concert series which features younger composers, mm -hmm. and I put their music up with my music and other people's music. Mm -hmm. uh, and th this is a very interesting generation of composers that we're having right now, people in their 30s, uh, mm -hmm. in their late 20s and early 30s. Uh, one of the things that uh, happens, uh, if you live long enough, you get to see there's a, there's a big cycle that happens. It's about, it's about a 60-year cycle. Mm -hmm. And for us, uh, it would be going back to the 1950s and 60s when uh, there was tremendous uh, upheaval politically. And we had McCarthy, McCarthy and yeah. we had the, the communists, uh, that whole business going on. And then at the same time, we had Allen Ginsberg and uh, all that stuff going on. And it seemed to be that when things really get rough in the society, the arts really get going. Mm. Uh, and and that's exactly what's happening right now. There, there's young people in the theater, uh, people uh, in, in, in music, uh, they're writers, and there's something about when the, when the society gets kind of out of whack in one way. Mm -hmm. There seems to be. I think Mother Nature has a way of trying to fix it by 
bringing in a lot of talented young people. And that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing that right now. They're beautiful composers and, and singers. And, and uh, I just was in Italy, and there was a pianist who was a very young guy playing some music of mine. He was really good. Mm. Very, very good players. And, and I just said, well, where, how does that happen? And then when I think of the history that I've gone through, I can see that, that it's about a 60-year cycle. And we're, we're just in that place right now. So if you look at it that way, things are going to get better, and then they'll get worse again. Then they'll get better, and they'll get worse. That's how it is. Now, we didn't, we didn't make that up. It's, it's what we do. That's really, that's really powerful. Um, do you hear, um, now that people have been playing, listening to, absorbing, wrestling with, learning from your music for a while, do you hear it, uh, traces of, of, of it resurfacing in new music? And oh, no, does that ever surprise more you? More than traces. I hear it in commercial music, I hear it in film music, I hear it all over the place. But the thing is, I've also, the things I've musically moved on from that. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't, um, the offers I'm writing now don't sound like this. And some people like them, some people don't. It's just like, just like when, it, when I first wrote the other pieces. Uh, I, I, the language of music for me is still evolving. And um, I don't see how it can happen any other way. Uh, my way of thinking keeps evolving. My brain is changing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's part of the process. I've heard you say, I remember reading, from reading your, your memoir, um, that it was the, the the plays that Beckett was writing in in Paris in the '60s that made um, a huge impression on you, and you actually worked with with well, Beckett. Well, I was a, a, a young theater company, uh, mostly Americans actually, mm. and he was living in our neighborhood, wow. and um, we had the the temerity or foolishness to approach him and ask him if we could work with his work, and he seemed to like us. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, and he. Uh, I wrote about eight or nine scores for plays of his during that period. Uh, and um, after he died, uh, his estate uh, assured us that, that those events had never happened and they, <laughs> that, that I, wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be allowed to write music for Beckett Place again. Oh, wow. But that, about five or six years later, I was asked to do something, so they got over it. Uh, uh, but uh, we looked up to him. Uh, that was a person that we, that as, uh, I was in Paris on a Fulbright study, mm -hmm. and, but there were other people there. Paris is always, and those years it was a very, uh, the, the, the film world was exploding with uh, Godard and Truffaut, that was happening at the same time. Uh, uh, Jean Genet was doing new plays at the, uh, um, at the, uh, at, at Théâtre Dion. Mm -hmm. So, um, the most radical theater was happening in Paris at that time. I, I doubt whether it's happening that way right now, but we, we got swept up in that moment, and uh, we were very fortunate to be there. Uh, and it, it somehow provided a key to me in understanding the way um, some of the operas that you wrote relatively soon after that time, how they work, um, on a big formal scale, and I'm just going to probably misquote you here, but the idea that in a, in a Beckett play, a different part might be moving, might be the most moving part to you yeah. on a given night, and that it's going to, it might catch you by surprise. Well, it's a different, uh, he and Genève too, and other people, uh, changed the way theater was done. You know, there was a classic, uh, 
tragedies that were done, let's say, by, by, by Shakespeare, mm -hmm. where you have a, a heroic character and then the fall of the character becomes the, uh, that becomes the dynamic of the tragedy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, there, so there's a very, uh, there's, a, there's a formal shape to it, which will always be that way every night. Yeah. The thing about the Beckett places that I, I noticed right away was that, and I saw them many nights because we were, we were performing them, that the, 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 uh, the uh, emotional peak of the piece was in different places on different nights. And I realized that they weren't written, they were written that way. They were written to, to, not, to not make that happen exactly the same. So in a way, uh, he was writing it expecting the spectator, the audience, to mm -hmm. formulate for themselves where the, where the, uh, uh, what the trajectory of the, the piece was. In other mm -hmm. words, uh, it was what John Cage said when he, when he said that, uh, that, the, uh, that the audience completed the work of art. Mm -hmm. That the act of listening was the actual completion of the transaction. That, that music didn't exist in some kind of uh, uh, um, uh, platonic form uh, and then it's up there and then we're down here. That, that actually, uh, the music, and, and as a performer, because I, I do a lot of playing myself, uh, I found that to be absolutely true, that when I'm playing in front of an audience, I can feel the transaction that takes place between the performer and the audience. And mm -hmm. the fact that I'm the composer sometimes doesn't have very much to do with it. Uh, sometimes I'm, uh, I'm changing the music as I'm playing it. Uh -huh. And when I hear, so therefore, when I hear other people changing the music, I don't get so angry at them. I think, well, that's what happens if you get involved with a piece That's of a very music. reassuring thing to hear before a performance. <laughs> well, it, it has the virtue of being actually what's happening. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and when you look at it that way, uh, you can see that, that if, you, if you look at Beckett's work that way, you look at Janet, you look at the people of that time, you can see what, that they needed the audience to... to, to, to that the meaning of the work came about through the, the, uh, through the experience of the audience. You know, I think no, that, that else, yeah. by the way, that happens in movies all the time. But, hmm. However, I've done a lot of movie work too. But in movies, we tend to deny that that's happening. Hmm. We, we think of music as being a, a, decor, a decorative element. But in fact, it turns yeah. out to be a structural element. Integral, uh, yeah. It doesn't matter what you think it is, it does it anyway. Um, one of the things that has been most, I think, inspiring and enduring about sort of the way you did things um, in your f first years as a working composer is the way that you worked with your own ensemble and, and as you say, performed, and the way that it seems that that informed the way you wrote the music because you were doing it yourself and writing it for people. Well, you... yes, there was that. And the, but also, I, I saw... Uh, I could I could see what the audience was doing. I could see huh. what the effect was happening. And some people, sometimes people threw things at us. That, that <laughs> happened too. It wasn't always so nice, but uh, on the whole, it was a progressively engaging uh, process. Now, it, it was at a later point, uh, you were just mentioning it before we started, that it was at a later point that you began again, though you'd studied it uh, at Juilliard and elsewhere, that you began again writing for what we would call conventional orchestras or, or yeah. operatic mise-en-scene. Well, Matthew, um, I did that because people asked me to. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote 11 symphonies, all of them were commissioned by, 10 of them by one conductor, 
uh, Dennis Russell uh, Davis. Russell Davis. Yes. He just wanted me. And I said, Dennis, what's the idea? Why do you want all these operas? He said, these symphonies. He said, well, I'm not going to let you be one of those opera composers that never wrote a symphony. <laughs> I've written 11 of them now. Uh, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't intend to write them at all. I, but he had an orchestra, and I was being paid to do it. And I, I found it interesting work, and I did it. So it still feels like home-based to you to write for your own ensemble or for performers that you know? Not, is not it, so uh, much anymore. Uh, right. I, I did for 30, a good 30 years I wrote for that group. Mm. And I occasionally write pieces for them now. But we have enough music now so that we can, tr we can tour without... We have enough music to tour without in the my, trunk. Yeah, we just we just go back in the repertoire and find things we haven't done for a while, and we do that. But uh, I'm more interested now in working with orchestras. And, and in terms of operas, I ended up writing. Well, I've learned a lot about I learned a lot about voice from singers, and I learned, well, mm -hmm. learned a lot about operas from conductors. And um, I did my I did what I when I began working in the theater. Began working doing theater music when I was 20. And I would, I, when I was writing music for a play, I would go to the rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Now, that's almost, no, no one does that, but I did it. Because huh. I, wanted to, I wanted to understand how they were made. I wanted to understand how costumes were done. I wanted to know how the lights were done. Uh, when I was doing, uh, working with Bob Wilson and I saw on the beach, I was at all the rehearsals all the time. Mm -hmm. Even with the Arthur Miller play, which, uh, The Crucible, uh, there was a three-week rehearsal period not too far from where I lived, and I was there every day. Mostly I wrote the music during the rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave it to this guy, Ivo uh, 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 Van Hop, the, the director. And uh, he said, I, I think we need a song here. And about an hour later, I would say, oh, I got the song. And what I would do, I'd, I, this is so great, I would phone it down, I would, I would take a picture of the music, and mm -hmm. I would send it down to my office, and then they would make a, a tape from it and send it back to me, and I wow. could hand them a, a work tape within about an hour and a quarter. So that's how, that's how I did that. It All was, before the days of, you know, MIDI oh, files. Oh, well, this, no, this was, no, this was uh, a couple months ago. Oh, this is a couple months ago. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but what I could do then was that I could, uh, I could fit the music right into the play. Right. And I didn't, you know, the, the main thing is I, when I went home, I didn't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. I'd done all the work at, at, at the rehearsal. And uh, uh, in, the, in the end, I wrote much, <laughs> I wrote so much more music than they actually use that we, we're, we're making a record of all the other music that's in it. But that oh, happens wow. anyway, because I, Ivo had thought, or he wanted to have the music, but I just wrote the music where I thought it should go. And most of the time, he used it, but sometimes he didn't, and sometimes I had to write other pieces for him. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, in conducting Akhenaten, um, there's, a, there's a kind of patience to the music that kind of reminds me of the well, way that's, that's Bruckner... That's a kind way of putting it, thank you. No, but it reminds me of the way that a Bruckner piece unfolds, that you sort of, it, there's a wave that, you know, you're not aware that it's cresting until it breaks over mm -hmm. you. Um, but I, I was kind of hard-pressed to find operatic as opposed to symphonic um, antecedents or inspirations. Well, were there any operas that... We, uh, the production you were seeing tonight, Fennel McDermott is yes. the director involved with the design. And he was able to take that kind of pacing that you're talking about yeah. and to, to fit it into 
a dramatic structure, which is what opera has to be. Mm -hmm. He found a way of doing that, which is remarkable. Uh, it, it is challenging to take music, which, to, which uh, it, it sets a pace which you might not expect to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the, the beginning, the first opening uh, piece that you hear, um, uh, it, you almost have no idea what, where it's going to go to, except that uh, it's going to be very dark. You know, and the, the, you know, you know that's, that a lot of bad things are going to happen <laughs> after this, and they do happen. But uh, uh, what, uh, the way he solved all these the problems very ingeniously, and uh, as I saw it in London the first time, and I'm going to see it here tonight, but I understand it's the same production. It is. And uh, uh, when you work with uh, people like uh, Phelan McDermott, uh, and, and actually I should say with... Uh, with uh, the musicians here and yourself, for that matter, we're working with people who really know what they're doing. And uh, am I exaggerating? Going we hope. Far? We, we know, hope so. Anyway, proofs on the pudding. But, but uh, and then when we give them something which doesn't fit in to the repertoire in the normal mm. way, mm -hmm. it takes someone like uh, Phelan McDermott to invent a, let's say, a dramaturgy, mm -hmm. which is uh, consistent. Not only just consistent, but it supports it and and develops it. And something that some of you may be aware of, um, that the production features a kind of visual correspond, uh, uh, an element that corresponds to the way the music moves in an extraordinary way, which is juggling. Uh, an extraordinary team of jugglers uh, choreographed um, cycles. Um, and, and I wonder, uh, Phelan in particular has done, I guess, three of your pieces because you yeah. directed Satyagraha and, and the premiere of The Perfect American. Yes. Um, do you work closely with him as he's developing no, his no, conception no. or do you I, just say... I, absolutely not. In fact, I don't even want to know what it's doing. You don't even want to know? No. Now, I, I'd rather go, and he said, do you want to come to the rehearsal? I said, no, no, I'll come to the dress rehearsal. <laughs> Once I'm, it's too I'm late. I'm not going to do anything but annoy him if I come before then. So, uh, <laughs> I, 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 by doing it that way, then I, I want to see it finished for the first time. I don't mm. want. To, I'm not part of his process. I'm part of my process. Mm. But his process, uh, I want him to have the freedom. And why? Uh, I don't want to be around, you know, hanging around, being a nuisance while he's trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I figure that's. And by doing it that way, it, this is the, the the key thing. Not only in in, in uh, this opera, but in theater in general. When you work with collaborators, and he is a collaborator, yeah. as, as you are as well. Uh, uh, the, 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 the most important thing that you have between each other is trust. That's true. Yeah. And when that trust is complete, a wonderful things can happen. Mm -hmm. When Bob and I were doing Ice on the Beach, we had never worked before, and we almost, and we were working, uh, we were stationing the piece, and writing, I was writing the piece at the same time. We almost never talked about what we were doing. I think on one occasion Bob said, What's that high note there? I said, I said, oh, that's a pickle, Bob. He said, gee, it's a little high, isn't it? <laughs> so I, I just didn't say anything, but I changed it to the flute part. But then later on, we were in, we were in Vienna, we were in, in uh, where were we? In, 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 in Venice, and uh, uh, some of the, the, the sets had come down through the uh, on the big gondolas, gondolas, and uh, and I had said to Bob, you know, in this scene with the train. Uh, what's that tree doing there? I just thought that one thing, and somehow, miraculously, that tree fell into the canal. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was not an accident. So, so that's, I think I made one comment about the, uh, 
they, they, the core, and he made one comment about the music, and we didn't even talk about it. Uh, but that was, uh, uh, I found that uh, when you work with people, to, once you, uh, once that trust is there, you've empowered, the ensemble has been empowered to do their best work. It's funny, the, 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 the model, the, the kind of collaborative way of working um, that, you know, you've, that you've lived for, for decades now, um, you know, it's totally, it's like the most obvious way to work in the jazz and rock and many other non-Western worlds. Um, it, it hasn't always been uh, no. in the, class, the so-called classical world. For some reason, it seems like everybody, you know, that the, the, the level of collaboration, even on new pieces, is not always so integral. Was it? I mean, how did you come to the to the point of of wanting to? Uh, was it was it the presence of other non classical well, I mean, influences? I began, uh, when I was trying to begin working, and I was writing music, I was writing uh, music for plays right away. So uh, it was inherently the, collaborative. When I was a young composer, what I wanted to find, so I, I asked myself the question: Who wants the music? A very, and I found that dancers wanted it, theater people wanted it. I, 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 I didn't get paid very much. I remember the first piece of it was a, a play by Moliere called uh, uh, Scapin, I think. And uh, uh, I was paid $25 and I had to deliver the score, with the tape for that. <laughs> but I, I, I wrote the music, I recorded it myself and I gave him the tape. But uh, uh, the, the uh, the experience of working in the theater uh, was very much, at that time, uh, there were, were a lot of theaters that were, were the place were being written by the, by the players themselves. Uh, it's being done today now, we call it devising, but it's also began uh, with, uh, Peter Brook was doing it, uh, Bob Wilson was doing it, we were doing it. Uh, it was very common for theaters to make up pieces and to write the works that they were doing. That meant that the actors were also, could be the writers. Uh, then later on, some of them actually began doing straight plays, which was kind of interesting because they hadn't developed a career doing that, but they got very good at doing that too. Uh, so the idea of collaborative work happened because of this way of working, uh, which began began really with the, with the living theater uh, in, the, in the 50s. And uh, they were of inspiration to a lot of young people, including myself and Joanna Kalaitis, who was later became one of the uh, became the head of the public theater in New York, and uh, and the mother of two of my children, uh, and we worked for we weren't married for that long, but we worked together for forty years, uh, and and with a company which uh, were the the elements of, uh, of of text and image and uh, movement and music uh, were were being integrated in the rehearsals. Uh, that's become very much more common now. When we began doing that kind of work in the 60s, uh, it was uh, less common, but it was very, it was rich with promise when we were, we were, we were taken by it. And it, it was just the way we, we uh, none of us were working in, in, in traditional theaters at all. We weren't in regional theater, we weren't in any kind of theater. We were playing at La Mama, we were playing at the public theater, we were playing in, in uh, which is very much happening today, and, and uh, I'm sure it's happening in, in Los Angeles too. It's happening in most cities where uh, uh, people will be doing plays maybe in storefronts or in empty houses. Uh, sometimes they're doing, uh, they're doing plays for 20 people, 30 people. That's a good night. 
30 people for some of these things. And some of these people go, go from there to putting on pieces on Broadway. There's a piece called The Comet uh, that's coming to Broadway Green right Comet now. Comet of 1812, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, uh, Dave uh, Malloy, uh, he began in, in, in a kind of a improvisational theater. And he, extremely talented guy, and he's got a, got a Broadway show. So it's, it's, uh, it's opened up, uh, it's important, in fact, that uh, the, the, uh, that the theater, the, the Broadway theaters, the opera houses, that they're open to, uh, there's a burgeoning uh, group of uh, young artists working now with wonderful ideas, and, and they're going to be all around us, and it's going to be, it's going to be great. You may be weeping over the election, but you're going to really like the art. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like to ask you one more question without, you know, peering too closely into, you know, your studio, so to speak. I'm curious what what's inspiring you? What do you what do you feel like you got to get to writing when you start writing in the morning? What well, kinds of pieces? Well, I'm going to be actually doing a, a film now. I, I do film, film work too, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm going to be doing and there's several coming up that I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in film as a medium uh, uh, because it has all the elements of, of theater. It has text, it has image, it has music, it has movement. These are the earth, air, fire, and water. That's all we have. Those are the four things. And when they, they come together in the theater, they come together in film, they come together in opera. Mm -hmm. not, so, not all the time in theater, but uh, that may not have the music, but it, it can. Uh, uh, what I'm interested in is the interaction of working with people. And we tend to, when I we tend to work in very equal ways. It depends on, on the art form that you're working in, and films don't work that way. But theaters can often work from the ground up. With, mm -hmm. and, and film can work that way. It can work with, uh, uh, with, uh, with film editors and music editors and directors and... Uh, um, are working at the same time and creating the works together. Uh, the works I did with Garfield Richard, the Konyaskazi and those kinds of films, mm. they were done that way. They, they were done, I was writing the music while Godfrey was, was, editing, was shooting the film. So that was based on conversations that the two of you had had? Well, uh, and, and fragments that he was working on. We, we put our fragments together as we were working and they became the piece. We didn't do the music at the end. Did the music ever sort of lead? Did the, sometimes, the image react to it? Sometimes, and, so, and very often the other way around. Uh, when you work that way, the leading can come from almost anywhere. It can come from a very talented actor yeah. who's on the stage, and, mm -hmm. and you say, oh, that, I've got to write something for that person. You know, and you, you might not have be meeting that person for the first time. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Crucible has a song at the very end uh, that the, uh, the, uh, the, the lead character is about to be, 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 uh, be murdered somehow. You know, they... they Stones stone, or no, no, they, he water? Wasn't he, was, uh, yeah. he, that was, he was just hung. He was hung, but, okay. But uh, he sings a song before he... Uh, I grew up near Salem, so I had to, did, well, this, I had to endure those field trips. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, by the time uh, it came, we got to the end of the piece, and I had been watching him rehearse with... with Three, four weeks, uh -huh. I knew exactly what he could do, and I wrote mm -hmm. a song for him, which was the end of the piece. So uh, the process becomes an extremely uh, a fertile, fertile place to work from. The process itself uh, becomes the inspiration. 
It is great when, a, when you're writing for a specific artist and you get to, to know them and they push back at you and, and by the end of it, if it's an operatic role, the role might be a sort of tailor-made suit. Oh. But then, and some people uh, ask sometimes, well, if a role's written for one person specifically, does it then, you know, does well, it, it have to just be that person? But it somehow, it, it's important that it was written for an individual, oh, and then well, other individuals find their way to it. In, in the Appomattox opera, I was running, uh, there were two important arias for uh, Martin Luther King, and there was a wonderful young uh, uh, singer doing, doing that part. And... Uh, and uh, first time I wrote it, I was, I was running it too hard for him. I took it down two notes, I took it down two notes. And finally, it took me three rewrites till I got it into his voice, right where it was supposed to be. But, when I, but by the time we got done with that, this was happening in the rehearsal, I just go back and rewrite it. It wasn't hard to do. But uh, I had him right there. And by the time we got to the last, uh, the end, uh, he, could, he, could, he could live inside that part in no other way that anyone could have done. Well, I think uh, the cast you'll be hearing tonight has found their way under the skins of these characters in a pretty, I heard a pretty thrilling London, way. Uh, I heard, I heard the, your, the, the uh, agnostic part in London. And uh, I think there's some other... I think uh, the part of the narrator was done there, too. Yes. And, and it's the same person here. Mm-hmm. He's come here to do it. And those are two very important parts. And they are... Uh, if that's... I'm sure that this, uh, it's set a very high standard for everybody. Well, I think I'd better go prepare to conduct this thing. Um, <laughs> Mr. Glass, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and living inside this opera. Good. Thank you, Mark. Thank, Thank you, Matthew. Nice to see you. been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.